heart, mind, and soul. Yeah, the, the, whole, the whole person, heart, mind, and soul. Um, and so I hope that clarifies it up. I, I, it, it is kind of a semantics game, but I think it's important because it's, a, it's philosophical. That, that Jesus wants to transform our mind. And as R.C. Sproul said, without the changed mind, there is no changed life. Uh, because it's the, the mind that's going to change the way we feel. The way we think affects the way we feel. More so than the way we feel being the way, affecting the way we think. And so if we can change the thoughts of a man, we can change the life of a man. Um, and so Jesus came to testify to the truth. What was truth? Um, second thing is that he comes to call sinners to repentance. Matthew 9, 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. To call sinners to repentance. He didn't come for the righteous. And in this sense, it's more the self-righteous because there is no one righteous. Scripture says that there's no one righteous here. None of us are righteous. We are all uh, touched by that original sin. We've all been uh, condemned. And so our righteousness is as filthy rags. And I won't go into what the true meaning of that is. And two or three of you already know, and they're thanking me for it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. And, and our fear is that the church has become about the church. That sometimes we get to where we think we exist for ourselves. So that I feel comfortable. So that I like what's going on. So that I am entertained or that I feel good about myself or my church or or the people around me, as I leave. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I've come. The purpose for me coming is to seek and save the lost. I'm there for the unrighteous. I'm there for the sinner, to call them back to repentance. My comfort, my want, my need has absolutely nothing to do with it. We've become so concerned over my needs, my wants, and my preferences that I think too many times we forget the lost and their wants, and their needs, and their preferences. Now, we balance that out with Sunday morning, I believe, is designed for the believers. It's a corporate time of worship that we come to, to be encouraged with one another and, and to, be, uh, to be able to worship together. And the worship needs to be something that the, that the church comes together and does. And then if any unbeliever walks in, they're wowed by what they, by what they see because... That the Holy Spirit has filled this place and, and moving among the church. And, and so there is a, cert, <clears throat> a certain amount of my own want and need, but it is seeking and saving the lost, Bill. The Bible is basically designed for believers. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah. And a lot of, a lot of the church... <laughs> for an hour-long sermon, couldn't wait to get up. I, I know people go, oh, when I preach. Because they know it's not going to be 30 minutes and out. It's just not. And so people are like, oh, no, here we go, you know. Grab another mint. Uh, it's going to be, you know. And so we do have a hard time focusing really on, on, on that purpose, on, on getting it. Jesus said, too, that he came to preach to the villages, 
Mark chapter 1, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, a lot of us know that verse because it's a, a great verse on personal prayer and, uh, and discipline, getting up very early while it was still dark. He went off to a solitary place. But we sometimes forget the rest of what goes on there. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you, Jesus replied. Let us go somewhere. Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Okay, Jesus says, I've come so that I can go from village to village and preach. And so our purpose, if we're going to take on the purposes of Christ, our purpose is to make sure that we are going from village to village to preach. That, that we have churches established throughout the world, preaching stations. And I know that's one of the things the missionaries are you know, concerned about, that they are reaching villages that, that have previously been unreached. We don't have much of that here in the United States. I don't know that there's probably a one square mile section that hasn't been reached or preached to within the United States. Maybe some. But we are inundated with churches. Uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, my home. Nickname is City of Churches. Because if you look at the skyline, it's all steeples. Few, few big buildings, but it is just steeples everywhere. Church on every corner, restaurant on in between the two churches. Uh, <laughs> restaurants figured out. It's a good place to go, city of churches. Uh, people eat. And so we need to be about preaching. We need to be about preaching to the villages and making sure that the gospel is there. We have a responsibility to make sure that the gospel is taken to other areas. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's why Jesus came. It's why we exist. Number four, Jesus came to establish his church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was Peter he was talking to. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus came for the purpose of building his church. And he will build it. I don't have to build it. You don't have to build it. We are just faithful and obedient to the commands he has given us, and he will build his church. Jesus planned on accomplishing this task of world evangelism by establishing his church, his ecclesia, which is the Greek word that basically means community. He's going to establish his community of believers who would continue to operate according to his purposes. And that's his reason for starting small. Because if he was just going to come in and just blow everyone out of the water with miracles and healing and, and his, would he not start in Jerusalem, start in the big cities and just blow everything out and just be incredible and draw these big crowds? We don't see him doing that because he says, I'm going to establish my church. And at that point, it was going to be 12 leaders and about 108, 110 other people, disciples. Because after Jesus left, there were about 120 people in the upper room um, after he left on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came in Acts, uh, there were about 120 gathered there. And so he started with a church of 120. After three and a half years of ministry, he had 120 believers that were sold out, that were ready to go and do whatever he, whatever he called and commanded. And so he was establishing his church. Number five is he wanted to expand his base of workers. Luke chapter 10, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. 
He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. Just be about it. Get to the next village. Get to the next place. Don't stop. Don't dawdle. Don't worry about what you're taking, where your next meal's coming from. Just get about the business. And it's interesting that he went from 12 to 72, uh, which means 72 minus 12 is 60, so each of the 12 had five. So if each of the 12 were overlooking five, that's how they got to the 72, and they see sent them out in pairs. So at least at this point, he had 72 followers that he felt pretty confident in sending out to preach from village to village. And he gave them the, the authority to cast out demons, to, to heal the sick, uh, to preach uh, with authority. And so he wanted to expand his base of workers. Um, I believe, you always get in trouble when you say, I believe, this to be a weakness of our church here, Community Alliance Church. I'm not talking church worldwide now. Just our own church. Jonathan probably showed up a little too early to actually record this for me because <laughs> now this is going out. I don't know that we train up leaders very well. And I'm not speaking that that's your fault. That's my fault. I'm one of the leaders. That we need to be training up leaders. That we need to be expanding our, our worker base. And I'm not meaning nursery workers as, as viable and as, as important as that ministry is. I'm talking about people that I can send out into the street, into homes, into neighborhoods to call people to repentance. I'm talking about people that, that can take six or seven other people, whether they're unbelievers or new believers, and feel confident to walk in and say, let's talk about the Scripture. What's your questions? And let's dig in and let's go. I, I don't know how many of you feel comfortable. I know looking at some of you, you do, because you're one of the ones that are, you're doing it. But how many of us? feel confident to, to have a person, to take a person and, and bring them along and, and expand the workforce. This is to pray for, for not workers, but to pray for helpers. That's the, the, the best translation of that. Jesus says the, the, the fields are white unto harvest. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out helpers. What does that, what does that mean? That means I'm going out, I'm praying that he sends people to come along with me. We're not praying for other people to go and me not. We're praying for people to come alongside, come alongside me, that, I, that I'm going and I need helpers. I need to know who are those two, three, four other people that I'm going to be taking along with me and that I'm going to be training them, I'm going to be discipling them, and that someday they too are going to have two or three others that they're going out. And we expand the workforce. Make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. I believe that the person who leads someone to the Lord has the responsibility to train them up. That our job is not finished when they say yes and pray the prayer, our job is only beginning. And the, the hardest part is yet to come, is walking with them, is, is uh, 
is, you know, helping them through struggles, helping them to understand, helping them to gain the knowledge that they need, to continue to grow, to lead others, to go back into the world that they just came from and not get sucked in by the old way of life. Jesus said, I've come to expand. I've come to add. Pray that there are others, that there are people that you are going to help, helpers that come alongside you. Then we have the cost of following. Those were kind of Jesus' purposes. Testify the truth, call sinners to repentance, preach to the villages, establish his church, and then expand the, the workers. And that really makes sense. He did it himself, preaching through the villages, established his church, and then sent them out, and then began to expand the workers as they reached other people and brought them and trained them uh, really to obey everything that he had commanded them. That's the Great Commission. What is the cost of following? Jesus, was, uh, Jesus didn't pull any punches. He didn't hide things. As the disciples began to, to grow and understand who Jesus was, he began laying out more of the plan. He began laying out more of, of the pitfalls, more of what it was going to take, more of the commitment that, that you're going to have to make if you want to stick this out. He began sharing the cost of being a, fo- a follower. He shared some things just to the twelve. Matthew chapter 10 he said, some are not going to welcome you. You know, as he was saying, some just aren't going to welcome you. That's okay. If you're not welcomed by everyone, if not everyone likes you because of your faith, not because you're a jerk, okay? If they don't like you because you're a Christian, because of your faith, because of the stance you take, that's okay. If they don't like you because you're a jerk, well, then we need to work on some other things, Okay? He said, you're going to be handed over to authorities. Doesn't happen very much in the United States. Might be. Might be coming. That might be down the road. But it happens overseas all the time. People thrown into prison because of their beliefs. Went to school with a guy who worked in Egypt. Uh, His company stationed him in Egypt. And he began doing Bible studies and things like that. And the Egyptian authorities found a copy of scriptures on his computer. And he was thrown in jail for, uh, it was over a month that I know we, we were getting emails through the college. Uh, this was several years ago um, that he was then finally released and told not to do that anymore. Um, as far as I know, he's still there, still doing it. Um, but, you know, that you're going to be handed over to the authorities. You're going to be flogged, beaten, physical persecution. Your family relationships will suffer. Do you ever experience that? Again, In the United States, it's not so much, although I do know that if you come from a strong Catholic background, strong, strong Catholic family, and you accept Christ and begin attending a church that's not a Catholic church, you're going to face some of that. Not maybe to the point of a Muslim who accepts Christ and they treat him as dead, um, but you're going to experience some of that. There is a cost to following Jesus. You're going to be hated. You're going to live like a fugitive. He's telling the 12 disciples. You're going to be on the run. You're going to constantly be looking over your shoulder. That's okay. Expect it. Don't expect anything else. Then to the crowd of disciples, the other believers, he said, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross. Now, when they heard take up their cross, they knew what it meant. It meant be ready to die. Because anyone who was carrying a cross, that's where they were heading. In in just a few short minutes... They were going to be nailed to that cross. And possibly a few short hours, maybe a few short days, they were going to die on it. 
a horrible death. And Jesus said, unless you deny yourself, deny your needs, your wants, your desires, and seek only what my purpose, my desire, my wants are, and you're willing to deny yourself and take up your cross, that's normal Christian life. Jesus said, expect it. Don't expect anything else. And then to the crowds in general, he said, unless you hate your family, unless you hate your mother, hate your father, hate your brother and sister, you can have no part of me. Okay? And again, he's talking comparison. Unless you love me more than you love your family, which means leave your family and follow me. Now, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they all did that. Dropped their nets, went on. Matthew, we talked about, he did that. Left his workstation. Rome was not pleased with him in doing this. You know, Matthew, the tax collector, he got up from his booth and immediately followed Jesus. Left everything there. Maybe he wasn't the only one working the booth. I don't know. But he didn't go back to it. And so it says, unless you hate your family, unless you bear your cross, unless you have a non-materialistic lifestyle, told the rich young ruler, sell everything you got, give it to the poor, come follow me. The guy went away going, I can't do that. I can't do that. That's too hard. And Jesus said, unless you're willing to go to that end. Now, it's interesting that when he did that to the crowds, it was usually a big crowd. Jesus was never about attracting crowds. He was starting small, establishing his church, expanding the workers naturally. It wasn't about a crowd. When the crowd got too big, he started preaching tough stuff, and half of them would leave, and then he was back to the crowd that he could handle again. He did more to drive people away than to attract them throughout his ministry. And so there's a cost that comes. Now, what we really, we're going to really change gears because that all kind of ended, finished the starting small last night. We want to jump in now to, to his healing and his miracles. Um, because throughout his ministry, he healed. He healed people. He performed miracles. Um, did things that, that amazed the people around him that tended to draw a crowd. And some people came back because of the miracle, and they wanted to see another one. They wanted to see it again. You know, hey, this dude fed us yesterday. That was the biggest meal I've ever eaten in, like, months. Let's go back and see if he'll do it again. You know, and he even tells them, you know, you're not here because you want to know the truth. You're here because I fed you yesterday, and you're hoping for another meal. And so he, he did these healings and these miracles uh, throughout his ministry. And, uh, and so they're important for us to look at. Some of the verses there that deal with the healing, um, very early on, we see in his ministry, when he, when he went back to Galilee, very first miracle was changing the water into wine at the wedding. And when he left, he immediately started doing uh, miracles. So Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were uh, ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, The demon possessed those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Okay, so Jesus is up in here. Okay, this is Cana. This is where the wedding was. And he's traveling all through Galilee, kind of sets up in Capernaum. But from all over Judea, uh, Jerusalem, the Decapolis, uh, Syria, which is up in here, Word spread real quick of all that area, and people just started flocking around the Sea of Galilee, flocking to that area where Jesus was um, in order for them to heal him. 
Mark chapter 1, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Jesus healed many who had uh, various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now, this is after a long day of preaching. Mark chapter 1, he had, he had been preaching and uh, all day long. It was the, the Sabbath. He was in the synagogue um, preaching and Here it is that they're bringing uh, all of their sick to him. After dark. Why after dark? Some could be fear of the Pharisees. Although at this point, Pharisees weren't that big of a threat. He was just starting out. This was just a cool thing at this point. The Sabbath was over. Remember, it was a Sabbath day. The Sabbath is now over. They could actually pick up the sick and bring them. Before, it was against the law to carry the sick. Because it was the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to work. So as soon as the sun set, as soon as it was dark, they all went back and they picked their, the, the ones who couldn't, were immobile, were lame, couldn't walk, couldn't fend for themselves. They picked them up and then brought them to Jesus after the Sabbath. Um, because then it was lawful to bring the sick uh, to Jesus. Yeah. I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get that. Um, I knew that was going to. I knew that was going to come up because it was a question I had. Um, Luke chapter four, or like chapter four. Um, so he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. Um, this was the healing of uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, Matthew chapter eight. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. She got up, began to wait on the, on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carries our diseases. Matthew chapter 10, he called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness when he was getting ready to send them out two by two. Now, the first question that arises from that is the one that Dave just asked. Why did they wait? Uh, Actually, I already asked it. Why did they wait until dark? Second question is, why would Jesus not allow the demons to speak and say who he is? Wasn't his time yet. Um, They were so early into his ministry, um, and Jesus was really trying to fend off anything that would be, that would rile up the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he knew that if people realized he was the Messiah at that point, He wouldn't be able to start small. He wouldn't be able to gather his church. He wouldn't be able to expand his workers. And so he kind of had to just go about it as quietly as he could. And especially here, the demons, um, you know, he told the demons to keep their mouths shut. And it's interesting that this early in the ministry, the demons knew exactly who he was. Even to the point of asking, have you come right now to to destroy us? Are we about done here? Um, And... And so, uh, you know, Jesus was trying to, to ward off a national uproar over his identity this early in the ministry because it just would have wreaked havoc all the way along um, with that. Um, but it's interesting, too, that very early in his ministry, he shows his authority over the demons, that he's casting out demons. And that wasn't something that just happened every day. Um, and, and this was one who's, who spoke with authority. He wasn't proving anything to the demons. They already knew all about him. They knew exactly who he was. But Jesus established his power to heal the body from illness and to heal heal the mind from the demonic. 
Because the, the demonic tends to attack our mind, our thinking. That's where they want to go. Now, they may hit with a physical ailment, but if you follow it very long, eventually it will attack your, your thinking and how your mind works because Satan wants to confuse your mind. He wants to bring in doubt, and he will use physical means to attack your intellect. Um, and so uh, Jesus was very early in his ministry stating his authority over the demonic, over the enemy. And uh, they knew who he was. But he had to keep it on the low for a while so as not to go public too soon and cause an uproar that, that would just have ended everything poorly. Um, he, he needed to establish that time. Now, our church denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, believes in healing today. Some think it was just something that happened back then. It was for signs and, and to get Jesus kind of started in his ministry and, and to draw the crowd. Not true. Um, and that we don't believe in the kind of healing you see on TV. Okay? I hope most of you don't believe in the kind of healing you see on TV because that's not how Jesus did it. It wasn't a show on a stage. And interestingly enough, most of those people can walk up on the stage. They can see, they can hear. I'm not sure what they're healing them of. Usually a story that, that has very little proof of any kind of healing. Jesus' healings were always dramatic. They always changed the physical right here, right now. For the most part, it was right here, right now. Now, as we understand healing, we need to understand healing in the context of who God is. I gave you two blanks. One, God is omnipotent. So when we think of healing, he is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is capable of healing any illness, any and every. And we talk in these first few verses that as he started out, he was healing all. Anything that was brought to him, he was able to heal. Anything that came to him, he was able to touch, able to speak, able to do whatever necessary, whatever he saw fit to do, and that disease was taken care of. That illness was gone. The lame walked, the blind saw, the, the, the deaf heard. The mute talked. We also have to understand that he is all-powerful, but he's also sovereign. That he is in, the, in ultimate control. That he has a right to do whatever he chooses, whenever he chooses, and however he chooses. And so there are times that we've experienced people not being healed. Prayed for healing believed in healing, believed God could heal, have seen God heal before. God chose not to because he's sovereign. And we're okay with that. We have to be okay with that, that sometimes God chooses not to heal. We don't know why, but he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He knows. He has a plan, and this is fitting into his plan. Matthew chapter 15, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the, that vicinity came to him, uh, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. This is what he's saying. Now, a Canaanite woman is a Gentile, not a Jew. So it's not a child of, of Israel. Um, and he tells her, I was sent only to the uh, lost sheep of Israel. I was sent only to the Jews. And the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. 
Otherwise, it's not right to take what I have brought to the Jews, to Israel, and toss it to you Gentiles. Okay? It's not right for me to come in and I'm healing Jews and, and to then to go and heal someone else who's not Jewish. I've come to the lost sheep of Israel. I've come to the Jewish nation, is what Jesus is telling her. She won't give up. She comes back and says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed that very hour. This is where we get, I got the title for tonight, Jesus and Crumbs for the Dogs. Because we're not Jewish. Anybody in here Jewish? We are the Canaanite woman. We're the dogs. And Jesus says, I have come, and, and, and it is a great faith that enables us to also experience healing. That Jesus has come that, that we might be healed. Um, Keith, Bailey and the, Keith Bailey is an alliance uh, pastor uh, long ago. He said, he, Jesus, was implying no racial or ethnic discrimination in his answer. Rather, he wanted her to know that the blessing of physical healing by divine intervention was the unique privilege of a covenant people in proper relationship to God and that he had come as the Messiah of Israel to fulfill the covenant with them. That if you believe in Jesus, then you are a child of God. And then we have the right, we have the privilege of healing. That it can be extended to us as well. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, every aspect. We have the right to go to God and cry out for healing. <coughs> healing is provided for in Christ's death on the cross. It's part of the blessing. It's part of what we receive. It's part of redemption and salvation. And so we need to understand as we're talking about this, this doctrine of healing or this theology of healing, that God is omnipotent. He can heal anything. He's also sovereign in that he, he has a right to do whatever he chooses, wherever he chooses, whenever he chooses, however he chooses, to whomever he chooses. And that we by faith cry out as a child. Right. We believe that God still heals today, that we have the ability to come to him and the elders and the laying on of hands and, yeah, as in James. And I think we'll, we'll look at that here in just a second um, with that, that we, we do have, um, you know, if any of you are sick, call the elders, they'll anoint with oil. Um, there's a couple understandings of that word anoint, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. Chuck Swindoll gives us five principles regarding divine healing out of that book, uh, Jesus. He says the first one is that the will of God is paramount, and we must respect it. Romans 8, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. 
according to God's will. He's working for good to those who love him. And so we have to respect God's will when we come for healing. When we come seeking uh, his touch, we have to respect his will. 1 Peter 5, And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Okay, the God of all grace. After you've suffered for a little while, suffering is part of God's will. We need to respect it and accept it. It's not, it's not get enough faith and God is obligated to heal. You know, if you just had more faith, you'd be healed. That's not true. That's a lie. Because then sometimes you're, then somehow your healing is dependent upon you. And it's not. It's dependent upon God and his will. And that's wrong. Yep, and it's not all about you. Because it, it, what that says is if I summon enough faith, if I, if I hit the meter high enough, if I get to that level, whatever that level is, then God's going to go, okay, you made it, go. And now I'll heal you. This is not how God works. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But if we have faith in God, then we please him. That doesn't necessarily mean we're going to be healed because we go back to God's will is paramount and we have to respect it. Bill and then Sylvia. Right, right. Sylvia. Exactly right. Right, exactly right. Death sometimes is the ultimate healing. Sometimes, And we don't tend to look at it in our humanness. We don't tend to look at it that way. Um, I've said with, you know, with my mom, I would trade places with her in an instant. But I would never ask her to do that. Because she is now in the presence of God, and Jack's the same way. I'd trade places with Jack in a heartbeat. Actually, a heartbeat's about all it would take. Or a lack of a heartbeat. <laughs> The, the healing did kind of taper off. I mean, we, we can see that, that. We don't see as much of it in the, in the epistles or, or in Acts, as much of the healings taking place as what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels. Number two, um, it's also important to know that there were, there were people in some of the villages that God did not heal. He didn't heal every person every time. Early on, it sounds like he did, but later, as you read through, he didn't heal everybody as he walked through crowds, not everyone reached him. Not everyone was healed. Um, and some he chose to, and some he chose not to. Um, number two, medical assistant, it, assistance is imperative. Seek it. Um, there's also that thinking out there that if you have enough faith, you don't need a doctor. Um, there's a whole church that believes that way, a whole uh, sect of Christianity that believes that, that you, you do not you should not go and seek out doctors. That you should just have faith and you should just pray. 
And every once in a while you read it on the news that there's some little kid who's sick and their parents believe that and won't take them to the doctor. Um, Scientology might be, I'm not sure. I don't know. But that's not what's taught in Scripture. Um, Matthew, or Luke chapter 10, but a Samaritan as he traveled, the story of the Good Samaritan, came where the man was and when he saw him he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the the man on his own donkey took him to the inn took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. That, that whole look after him is tend to his needs, getting the help that he needs. Um, Jesus, nowhere here, to, said just stand by his bedside and pray for him. Although praying is not a bad thing. It goes together, but, but medical assistance is imperative. Um, Many times we'll, we'll try medicine, and then if that doesn't work, we pray <laughs> and ask God to heal. No, flip it the other way around. Pray, and if God doesn't heal, seek medicine, okay? Um, or at the same time, while you're driving to the doctor, pray. Um, the two go hand in hand. It's not seek medical advice, and if that doesn't work as a last resort, ask God to pray or ask God to heal. Um, the two go together. Um, I even encourage finding a Christian doctor. Uh, because they're going to understand prayer. They're going to understand, hopefully, healing. And they're going to believe in that as well. And uh, they're going to understand how the enemy works. And there's been times that I've gone into my doctor and I said, I don't know that there's really anything wrong, but this is what the symptoms are. And it may very well be an attack of the enemy, and he totally understands that. He runs the test and says, there's nothing wrong. And immediately the symptoms go away. Um, and so, yeah, Bill's pointing to my head because I'm usually a head case at that. Um, and that's where, it goes, that's where I go back to say Satan will attack your mind. He may hit physical symptoms, but he's wanting to attack your mind. He's wanting to get there, and he will use the body to do it. Um, and so there are times that I've just gone to the doctor and said, here's the story. And I said, just confirm that what I'm thinking is right. This is an attack of the enemy and that there's actually nothing wrong. He runs a test that said there's nothing wrong and it's gone. And uh, so medical assistance is imperative. Seek it. Number three, intercessory prayer is God's command. Obey it. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be open. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The idea that we need to be asking, we need to be seeking God, uh, and we need to do it on behalf of others, um, not just ourselves. Now, that requires the one who is sick to share the need, okay? There's a lot of times we'll have people call the church, say, I was in the hospital, no one came to visit me. I said, did you tell anyone you were there? No. Okay, how did we know? <laughs> okay, don't expect people to be praying for you if you've not told them you're sick. Don't expect them to know how to pray if you've not shared with them what you're going through. And so intercessory prayer is a command, but it's also then that the flip side of that is we're commanded to share those needs with one another, to, to share uh, what it is that we need. Um, we have a ministry as a church of healing and prayer. It needs to be one of our purposes, and I'm glad for the alliance that it is uh, one of the things that we are about. Number four, confession of sin is healthy. Practice it. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. 
Not all sickness is caused by sin, but we can't rule it out. Okay, if I'm in the hospital and someone is, is suffering and has been for a long time, I'll talk to them. Could this be a spiritual battle? Could this be a sin in your life that has gone unconfessed that's causing this? Have you done a self-evaluation? Have you, you know, examined yourself? And, you know, that's one of the first things. If I, if I get sick, God speaks to me in the bathroom more than anywhere else. I'm just telling you. Okay? He gets, your atten- he gets my attention there. That when I start feeling sick, when I start getting an ailment, I'm immediately drawn back to, okay, and, and I'm, I'm confessing sin, I'm digging deep, I'm looking to things, I'm probably confessing things I didn't even do, but I thought about doing, um, and maybe do. Or, and so, we need, the confession needs to be a part of that healing, okay? That, that total cleansing, not just of the physical, but of the spiritual as well. If I have an Ill, illness that hangs on, one of my first actions is prayer, self-examination, confession of sin before God, and, and asking him to, to take the sin and to take the illness. Um, even if the sin is not the cause, it opens wide the relationship and the communication with God. It only helps. So confession, whether it's over an illness or not, is a good thing to practice. Number five, all healing is of God. Celebrate it. Doctors do not heal. Medicine does not heal. God heals. And only God heals. He will use doctors. He will use medicine. And sometimes he just does it. But it is all comes from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Luke is known as the beloved physician. Christ is known as the great physician. Because he's the one that heals. And, and only him. So all healing goes back to who God is. Any questions you have on healing? I think so. Um, whether they understand it or not, I don't know. Um, I think, you know, Denny always or whoever is leading always says, do we warn people enough about taking communion when we're taking communion and that whole self-examination? And it even says in Corinthians that some of you are sick because you've taken it wrongly. You've taken it with the wrong motive or the wrong attitude. Um, and I, so I think, you know, we, we always say that you need to examine yourself um, and, and clear yourself with God and with others. We don't go the full way to say some of you are sick because. I know sometimes that passage is read. Um, but yeah, maybe we might not be a bad thing to do it again, um, just as a reminder. Any other questions on healing? Yep, buddy. Confess our sins with each other means with each other. Doesn't mean up here but it means in your close-knit group of Christian friends that you are counting on, that you are supporting, that you are praying with, small group would be the, the place that that would happen. Um, if you have that, that smaller group of intimate Christian believer friends that support you, hold you accountable, walk with you, you're doing life with them, that's where that confession takes place, not necessarily up here. That, we kind of worry that it's supposed to be up here. That's not what it's talking about. Right, right. He has to know what to pray for. And so, yes, we confess to one another, but it is that small, intimate group, not the entire church. Miracles. We'll go through this pretty quickly. Jesus performed 36 miracles uh, recorded by the gospel writers. Um, 
36 that we have, uh, that we actually have recorded for us in those Gospels. John chapter 20 wraps them all up. So Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, meaning John's book, not the whole Bible, just John's Gospel. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Um, so the, the miracles were there for a reason, point people to God, to see his power, to see his authority, and to, to come, in, uh, come to faith in him, to believe that, he, that Jesus is the Christ. Um, these miracles were part of what drew the crowds uh, because the word spread very quickly. Um, and in that culture, miracles were used to validate the speaker. Because a lot of times someone would get up on a soapbox or a street corner or whatever, and they would begin preaching something, whether it was truth or not. And someone would say, give me a sign. Show me. Prove to me that you are worth listening to. And then they would have to perform something. They would have to do some sign that, that proved that they, had, that they had authority. And so it makes sense that Jesus early in his ministry was doing that because the people needed a sign. They needed something that would show his authority. And casting out a demon, pretty big something um, because that wasn't uh, always there. Um, John chapter 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God were not with him. You see, the, the, the miracles that Jesus was doing validated his authority, validated that he was from God. Um, now, many false prophets and teachers would use magic and sleight of hand to kind of get the same effect. Um, but Jesus always outdid them. Um, they, too, wanted to draw a crowd, give themselves credibility to the lies that they were they were teaching but Jesus performed miracles to relieve pain he performed miracles to relieve suffering and to teach about a God who cares for his people Jesus wasn't there just to draw a crowd and make himself look good he was there every miracle every every healing taught that God loved them and, and that that uh, he, you know he he could relieve the pain and the suffering now, what's a good definition of a miracle? Uh, Chuck Swindoll gives a pretty good one. It says, when God created all things out of nothing, he also devised laws of nature, such as gravity and thermodynamics, to give order and purpose to everything in the universe. While God, for the most part, allows this cosmos to work according to the laws of nature, there is never a time when he is not directly and personally involved in every detail of life. Sometimes, however, God dramatically defies the laws of nature in order to validate an event as divinely ordered. What's a miracle? God def defying the laws of nature. Something that is not naturally going to happen, that could not normally just come about, but God stepping in and defying nature. And we see then, I listed for you the 36, um, as best we can tell by the year of his ministry. Now you say that he was three and a half years and I have four years here. Right, that half, fourth year is the half year. Okay, so in the first year, he did seven. Some of them that stand out, and I'll just kind of point them out to you, I encourage you to go through and read through all of them. Just go from uh, book, chapter, verse, and, and read through the miracles. But number three, the healing the Capernaum demoniac in Mark chapter 1, says for the first time, he showed his power over Satan. Uh, this man was possessed to the point of the man's personality was hidden, and the demon spoke through him. And so that person was so possessed by the demon that he no longer, he was so deep 
in there that his personality no longer came through, that it was the demon that totally had possessed and used his body for his own wants. Okay, so that when a voice came out, it was the demon's voice, not his. Now, I don't know that it was music, like in the movies where it was, you know, that demonic voice. I doubt it, um, but could have been. Uh, but Jesus, uh, Jesus just spoke the same spoken word as if he was talking to the person. He just spoke to the demon, and the demon came out. And the people were used to demons being dealt with through spells and some magic cantation. Okay, that, that they would have to do something. They would have to, you know, boil something. They would have to make some special potion. And, and that was how they got rid of the demon. Jesus just spoke. And that demon believed and, and was gone. He obeyed immediately. Jesus had authority in himself that the demons listened to. Everyone else who had ever done it had to go to authority somewhere else had to go to some other source of authority to, to drive out a demon. Jesus just did it. And that interested the crowd. That Several times they said, he, he speaks with authority. We've never seen anything like that before. The, the, what he's able to do and, and the authority in which he speaks was amazing to them. So that's a, a significant one. Number six, the healing of a leper. Leprosy, as you know, was a serious disease in New Testament times. Anyone with leprosy was declared unclean and unable to worship in the temple. Anyone who touched a leper was declared unclean and unable to worship in the temple until they went through a cleansing ritual. Jesus reached out and touched this leper. And I can't help but think there was an audible gasp in the crowd. Not to mention that when he went to touch him, I can't imagine but what the leper didn't pull back. Because he knew the ramifications of someone touching him. That that person would be unclean and he would be even more outcast because he caused someone else to become unclean. Jesus touched him. And again, the leprosy was healed. So, so Jesus was, was not afraid to break the ceremonial law to help a person. He would touch the leper. Look at number nine in the second year, healing a centurion servant. Centurion was a Roman citizen, but this centurion we see as we read through the scripture was, had found favor with the Jews. In fact, he asked the, or told the elders to go find Jesus and bring them back because his, his uh, servant was ill and he knew that Jesus could heal him. So the Jewish elders went, and while they were bringing Jesus back, the centurion sent even another servant and said, you know what, don't come to my house. I'm not worthy of you being in my house. Jesus, you are, I, I know who you are, and, and I'm not worthy to, for you to come into my house. If you just speak the words right from where you are, I know my servant will be healed. Jesus said, great faith. Your servant's healed. And it was at that point that he was healed. And people marveled. Even Jesus marveled at the amount of faith in that man, a non-Jew. Jesus doesn't have to be there. Up to that point, he had always been present. He had touched, he had spoken, they were in the vicinity. Here he spoke and miles away, maybe. That servant was healed. That was a whole new authority. Look at number 12, healing the, the Gadarene demoniac. Um, all three synoptics record this. All three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this. This was probably the worst case of demonic possession on record. Okay, um, Gadara, because they got out of the boat, 
right up here's the Sea of Galilee. This whole region right in here is the country of the Gesserines. And the Gadarenes would be from Gadara. And so about six miles from the Sea of Galilee is where the city of Gadara is. And so that whole region would be the Gadarenes. And so when they got out of the boat on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, there they were met with this demoniac, um, this man that, that was possessed by a demon, not just one, but many, because Jesus engaged him. He didn't need to, but he did. Jesus engaged for whatever reason. Jesus started a conversation with the demon. And he said, what's your name? And the demon said, my name is Legion. And we're told that it's because there were many of them. We don't know how many, but a Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. So this man could have, we know he had more than one, probably had a large number, and if legion holds true, it could have been up to 6,000 demons in him. Okay, worst case in the history. Okay, the man was naked, lived in the cemetery among the tombs. He was strong as they had tried to chain him down, both his hands and his feet, and he would break the chains and run free and, and hide. And the demons would take him out into the tombs and he would hide and live out there, basically destroying the man. Um, when Jesus went to cast the demons out, um, because there were so many of them, they pleaded with him to give them permission to go into the pigs. Now, we tend to think that Jesus cast them from the man into the pigs. He didn't cast them. He just gave them permission to. Yeah, okay, if that's what you want to do, you go do that. Because a lot of people say, well, why would he kill the entire herd of pigs? You know, didn't that upset the farmers? And that would be, he didn't. He just gave them permission. If that's where you want to go, go there. Um, and then, you know, the pigs ran down the hill, drowned in the, probably the Sea of Galilee, the entire herd. And the demons then had to go find somewhere else to live um, at that point. And so... Jesus, the dealing with that demoniac is, is a little different than what we'd expect. One, he didn't just drive him to the pit, to, to Hades. They, they were, but they alleviated that, that man. Now, the area there is not a Jewish area. A number of ways we can tell that. The pigs. Jews didn't raise pigs. Okay, so this probably was not a Jewish person that he healed and cast the demon out of because the Jews didn't raise pigs. They wouldn't eat pork. It was an unclean animal. And so Jesus, even now, is going and taking his uh, healing powers to the, the Gentiles. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, he told the man to do what? This man wanted to follow him, wanted to become part of the group. And what did he tell this man to do? Go back to Gadar. Go back to your people and tell them everything God's done for you. Now, he never did that before. Remember, he always said, don't say a word. Don't tell anyone. But at this point, he was safe because it was a Gentile community. There, he wasn't going to run and tell the synagogue leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Word probably was not going to spread and cause a problem for him later on. And so he said, no, you go and tell uh, your city, your town folk, your family um, what all has happened to you. Um, number... 31, the raising of Lazarus. From a human perspective, probably the greatest miracle. Um, he'd been dead for three days, four days. Uh, he stinketh. Uh, he had to stinketh. 
You know, they even warned him, don't open that up. You know, you open that tomb up and it's just going to be a bad scene. You don't want to do that. But Jesus had planned this out. This was not a spur of the moment. Someone in a crowd came to him and he healed them. He thought this out because he waited to get there. He tarried longer than he needed to to make sure that Lazarus had died and had been wrapped and placed in the tomb. And then he showed up. And of course we know they opened the tomb and he called Lazarus forth. Lazarus came out and they said unbind him. So they unwrapped him and he was good to go for who knows how many more years. Uh, and, and so this from a human perspective is probably one of the greatest miracles just because of, of, of it being planned out and four days in the tomb. I mean that, there's decay already happening. Um, and Jesus healed that uh, at that point. Um, we also need to understand that Jesus used different methods, okay? Um, we have recorded one, two, three, four, five different times that he healed blind people. He never did it the same way twice, okay? In one, he touches their eyes. In Matthew, he touches their eyes. In Mark chapter 8, he spit on his eyes and then put his hands on him twice, he spit in his eyes, put his hands on him, and said, can you see? And he said, well, all the people look like trees. Said, okay, let's do it again. And he put his hands on him again, and then he could see. Um, healing a man born, born blind. Um, I think that was one where he spit in the ground, made mud, and then rubbed mud in the guy's eyes. Okay? Um, healing a blind man in Matthew chapter 20, he touched their eyes. In Luke, the story is he just spoke, and it happened. And then the same is true uh, with the last one in Mark. He just simply spoke. So all different kinds. So we can't put God into a, this is how he's going to work. Well, this is how he healed me. This is what I did, and he healed me. That doesn't work. Because God's omnipotent, and he's sovereign. He's going to do it how he wants it, when he wants it, to who he wants it, how, whenever he wants it. Okay? And uh, so we have to understand that just because he did it one way this time, doesn't mean he's going to do it the same way the next. In fact, he's probably going to do it differently. Um, partial list. Did I actually give you blanks on this? I usually don't give you blanks on the last one because I know we're never going to get to it. Let me give them to you real quick. They're real self-explanatory. I'm just going to give them to you and then we'll be out of here. Um, he has power over the trivial. Power over the trivial. Water, changing the water into wine. That really wasn't a big deal. Okay. It was a nuisance for the guy giving the wedding, and Jesus said, you know, I can take care of that. His mom asked him, he said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Just tell him to go fill those with water, and out came the really good stuff, okay? Um, he had power over distance. He didn't have to be in that place. He could speak in miles away. Uh, he had power over time. He healed many with illnesses from birth and over long periods of time. The lady with the issue of blood for years. Uh, someone that had an 18-year infirmity, he was able to, to, you know, Lazarus, dead for four days, okay? Uh, he had power over time. He had power over circumstances. Feeding of the 5,000 is an example of that. He had power over nature. He calmed the storm. He, he, uh, he controlled and commanded the wind. Um, in the Old Testament, we see that God stopped the sun. He made time stand still so that Israel could win a battle. It was getting dark, and they said, Lord, we're running out of time. So he just, okay, go. He held back time until the battle was won, and then he allowed it to go again. Um, he has power over death. 
Jesus never went to a funeral that he didn't raise the dead back to life. Three times in scripture we read that he, he came upon a funeral procession or went to a funeral like Lazarus, and he always raised the dead person back. Um, those should be encouraging to us. Nothing's too trivial for God. We can bring any need, a- any situation, any circumstance uh, from any distance. I can pray here for my friend in California. Okay? God works in, a, in distance. Uh, we don't need to be present there. Um, over time, circumstances, over nature, um, power over even death itself. Um, those should all be encouraging. So next week we're going to pick up a little more going back to a little more of the timeline and uh, where he's at. Uh, two weeks, not next week. Next week is Brian Campbell and the concert. So you're going to want to be there uh, for that, but then we'll pick up after that. All right, let's pray, and then we're out of here. Sorry for taking you uh, so long, uh, keeping you so long. We did get a little late start. So, Father, we thank you again that you are God, that you love us, that you care for us, that you are still in the miracle healing business, and that, Father, you desire good for us, and you work everything to good, for the good, according to your love. Father, we, we just desire to see you work. We desire to be about your purpose. Father, to, to, to testify to the truth, to preach to the villages, to, to share with our neighbors. Lord, to, to disciple the church, to expand the workers. Lord, that's what you've called us to do. Father, give us the gifts, the courage, Father, the, the, the want to rather than the ought to. Lord, that we would do what you have called us, that we would be obedient to you. Father, we are your church, and we are thankful for it, that you are our head, you are our leader. So, Father, now send out your church to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We will see you back. Well, we'll see you next week, even though I won't be here.